Hello and welcome to Red Nets, the official podcast of Empire of the Cop. Joining us today, we've got a star-studded cast, of course, of Steve Carson, Peter Kenny-Jones and Rick Elliott. They're going to be helping at the dissect a number of topics this week, including the ever-complex situation around NFTs and cryptocurrency. But we'll get into that momentarily. We're going to start off with the African Cup of Nations. Sadly, Nabi Keita's journey in the competition has been put to an end following a 1-0 loss to Gambia. But both Mane and Mo Salah remain. Mane, of course, uh, Mane Senegal sees it through to the quarterfinals following a 2-0 win over Cape Verde in which the big man himself scored. Mo Salah also played an integral role, scoring the winning penalty in a penalty shootout against the Ivory Coast. We're going to start off first, of course, with Sadio Mane, because he was allowed to play through despite having suffered concussion uh, during the middle of the game. Went on to score before being eventually substituted off. But this raises a lot of sort of uncomfortable questions uh, for the sport and particularly the handling of concussions in the game, doesn't it, Steve? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, with concussions, we saw it you know, massively with Boris Karius in the Champions League a number of years ago. You know, a player is not equipped to you know, respond to, are you okay to carry on? They, they'll they be absolutely fine, but then obviously they're not quite there all the way and they need to take some time away. Uh, obviously, recently we've had Curtis Jones ruled out for some time um, with the concussion. It's it's one of those things that you've really got to be careful with. And luckily it does seem like Sadio's okay, but yeah, I mean, you've got to be asking questions of why was he allowed to carry on? Why was that decision not taken away from him? You know, if you were to be devil's advocate, you could maybe look at the fact that that's their most important player, arguably, and you sort of wonder maybe if that factored into the decision-making, but that's me just speculating, of course. Um, no doubt that, you know, the medical staff were thinking about Sadio's health more than anything, and it was just a, a mistake. But, yeah, no, the question marks are there, and, and they really should be, because the player's welfare is, is a hot topic at the minute, especially where, you know, we've seen some horrible things over the last couple of years, and it seems to coincide with the calendar getting busier and busier. It makes you wonder, but, yeah, those question marks should be there, and, you know, it, the situation needs to be looked at, and it, it really can't be repeated. Uh, Pete, I'm going to come to you here because you've written an article about this uh, recently quoting uh, Luke Griggs, who's the deputy chief executive of Headway, which is a, a brain injury association. He told BBC Sport about the incident. On the face of it, this seems to be yet another example of football putting results ahead of player safety. Uh, this was a sickening collision that clearly left both players in enough distress for a concussion to have surely been considered a possibility at the very least. At that point, the principle of if in doubt, sitting out, should have resulted in Mane being substituted without another ball being kicked, which links obviously quite nicely uh, to Steve's point earlier about, you know, Mane's a crucial player for Senegal. There's no two ways about it. Um, but again, it's, it's another sort of demonstration of almost the end prize being valued over the individual player's health and well-being. Yeah, well, so, you know, the, he's the expert, isn't he? He's the one who's come out and said that. Obviously, it's, it's hard for anyone to know who, who didn't speak to, to Sadio or saw him on the pitch. And, you know, we don't know what test he did. And, you know, you, you should assume that they've done all the proper things and he's come out positive or whatever that, that he can play on. So, you know, you've got to trust the Senegal staff. But, you know, I think the, the, the African Federation have basically said, you know, it's up to each individual team, whatever protocol they want to do for concussion and you know I, I just don't think that that's probably the right thing to do there should be a, a blanket policy that you know we especially with what we've seen in the prem where the, the subs don't count even if they do because obviously 
it's a knockout tournament. And you know, if Mane does prove to be all right after five, ten minutes, you know, maybe it's you can do the temporary sub where he can come back on. But you know, it's 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 worrying to see him go down the way he did after the goal. You know, as you say, it was as he said, then you know he he would have felt fine, and then five, ten, fifteen minutes later, he, he's staggering and falling to the floor. It's not what you want to see, and. You know, it's easier for us because you know I don't know about usually. I'm not a Senegal fan. I'm not from Senegal, so it's easier for me to say, right, let's get Sadio Mane out and look after him. You know, if that's us, and you know, you say about Carrius Champions League final, that's us, and it's Mane or Salah or whoever in a big game, and they do end up being fine, and we get beat. It's going to be outrageous. You know, it's not fair. So it's it's hard to do, hard to say what's the right thing to do is, but you know, player welfare is top and. That's what Jürgen Klopp says all the time, and that's what should have been considered there. And Mane probably should have been brought off earlier, although they might not have gone through to the next round. So he might be happy with with how it's played out. I mean, it's quite an incredible sort of contribution that goal, given that you know there were the strong suspicions at the time that he'd suffered a concussion. Um, but you know, it, it's brought up these discussions. It's important that we're having them. It's important that the awareness around concussion continues to take place and that this continues to impact the sport uh, for the positives you know, going forward. Um, just moving on to uh, Mo Salah and specifically his contribution um, in Egypt's game against Ivory Coast. Um, Steve, I suppose the question is, because it, I mean, we've seen with the individual player awards in terms of the lack of recognition Salah has, has been given despite you know winning the Premier League, despite winning the Champions League and being an integral part of this Liverpool team under Jurgen Klopp. He's spoken specifically about the African Cup of Nations uh, being the one trophy, the one that's sort of closest to his heart, the, the big one that he wants to have, um, you know, by, by the end of the year. Is this the trophy that he needs to get that recognition that his performances deserve? I mean, I think it certainly wouldn't hurt, um, you know, but these people uh, that don't value Mohamed Salah, if he was to win the African Cup of Nations, I don't think their opinions would change on it. Uh, certainly people that look at Lionel Messi have said for years, but he's never won an international tournament. He wins an international tournament. And the people I've spoke to that held those opinions of Lionel Messi, uh, the idea being that Cristiano Ronaldo is the superior player, in my opinion, it's the other way around. Um, their opinion of it hasn't changed because he's won the Copa America. Um, so I don't think their opinion would change. Um, but just to touch upon, you know, Salah's just the history as a footballer. You know, he, he's been a Liverpool player for a number of years. He's, he's, he's known he wanted to be a footballer for you know, a couple of decades, you know, but he's been an Egyptian his entire life. I can see why, you know, he's, he's dying to get that silverware because you, you can see it in his face when he's playing for Egypt, when, when he's scoring goals for Egypt and the celebrations, it's just, it, I mean, it's the same for Liverpool in terms of passion. He wears his heart on his sleeve. You know, you, you see that all the time. But you, you just, you feel it. It's lovely to see uh, Salah celebrating with the Egyptian fans. It's a, it's a bit weird as a Liverpool fan, but you sort of, you, you watch the international footballers um, like Salah and Mane. You see them do these, you know, wonderful things for the nations. And there's a little bit of, little bit of pride in there, even though there's no right to be because... You know, I've had no impact on that man's career. He's done it himself. But there is a little bit of pride in there. You're like, what, Salah, you know, go do it for Egypt. You know, I think a lot of Liverpool fans, obviously, and, you know, I'd say this for lads playing for Spain, England and Italy and that, like, a part of you wants them to get knocked out so they come home, uh, so they don't get injured, stuff like that. It's quite a selfish, you know, short-term thing. But obviously, these players want to win these tournaments. Of course, they do. They want to win it for their country. And, you know, 
if Salah can go all the way and win it, I think that would be brilliant. Obviously, to do so, he's going to have to get rid of Sadio Mane. So I hope whoever wins out of them two will be lifting the trophy uh, come the end of the tournament. So, you know, it's one of those things. I think definitely with both being uh, still involved in the competition at the quarterfinal stage, you'd have to think there's a reasonable chance of at least one of them making it through to the final. I mean, it'd be great to see a showpiece final with both of them involved, um, but we'll take what we can get. Uh, certainly. Uh, now, we're going to be moving on to um, a rather sort of complicated and frustrating subject, uh, specifically NFTs, uh, known as non-fungible tokens. Um, I mention this purely because the club recently polled uh, fans were asking about their interest in NFTs and cryptocurrency in general. Um, so for those, I'm sure many will be familiar with the monkey art sort of pictures we've been seeing surfing, surfacing online. Um, but for this one, I'm going to bring in Rick Elliott to help me out on this one. Rick, is it troubling? Should we be worried about it? I mean, uh, for me personally, I'm a little bit on the, on the mindset of this current wave of uh, NFTs is, uh, like, NFTs in its current state probably isn't best use of the technology. Um, and it seems like a bit of a cash grab. Um, there's so basically the way if you if you're not clued up on what NFTs actually are, the best way to describe it is if you have like you know a pound coin and your friend has a pound coin, you both drop them on the floor. Um, they're both fungible uh, items, which means that if I pick one of those pound coins up, it doesn't matter which one it is. I've still got something of the same value as the other coin. They're both exactly the same. So um, with with digital items, you know, you can just make infinite copies. There's no actual, um, like, you know, th- there's no actual ownership of it because everyone can just make a copy and everyone's got the same thing. Um, so, so basically, everything is fungible. But um, on there's this thing called the blockchain, which is basically a giant ledger, which uh, you can sort of basically says this person owns this thing so therefore you're making something that is fungible non-fungible because there is no way for there to be uh, multiple instances of that sort on the blockchain i'm i'm absolutely butchering this but this is like probably this is like the easiest way to kind of describe it for someone who doesn't understand um but yeah so there's so essentially it's a way of saying definitively this item is owned by this person and so by doing so you're kind of giving value to an item that's digital so i'm assuming the club are investigating like what the f- the fan reception of them dipping into this uh, this world of nfts would be um uh, we've seen like in, in basketball, especially, uh, I can't remember who it is, but they're basically they're selling video clips of specific shots and goals. Um, so I could see a world where Liverpool as a football club go, right, okay, we are going to make a crypto, uh, well, we'll make an NFT of each Salah goal um, and sell those. And there'll only be one instance of each goal so if you want uh you know the the uh, a goal from the man united game a few weeks back a few months back you know you could buy one but that'll be very expensive because that's a a memorable match that everyone will want to you know have a have a part of that um so yeah so it's basically uh i i think that's the the way that they're going to go is they're going to try to uh rather than these these monkeys which are like or like the 
pixelated artwork that you're seeing all over Twitter or whatever. Like those are um, sort of AI generated images. And people are buying them based on, you know, oh, that looks cool or whatever. And, and it's sort of like Beanie Babies in a sense, where people are buying them in the hopes that in the future they will be worth a lot more. So, you know, I, I have a feeling that the, the club are basically going, right, well, hang on a minute, we can probably make a lot of money by, you know, first of all, selling these and get the initial money back. But then a, a benefit of NF, NFTs is that every time they are sold uh, further down the line, the, the original creator will get a small percentage of that sale. So therefore... <laughs> you can see like a future sort of revenue stream if these if these uh clips or nfts or whatever that may they may be going into are constantly being traded back and forth back and forth then that's like a constant revenue stream for the club so um you know that's there are elements of like i can see the logic from a business standpoint but it also feels like they're just jumping on this this train that's also um you know worth a lot of money so it's getting interest and it's also one of these things where they're also looking into cryptocurrencies well there've been a lot of clubs i think uh, i might be wrong but i think inter milan um have one of these kind of uh, cryptocurrencies where they give like these like fan tokens out and then that allows fans to vote on specific uh, issues with the club and go okay well where would you rather us focus money refurbishment money on would you rather it go on you know new seating or would you rather have it go on you know a nice new burger stand i'm just pulling examples out of my my backside there i don't i i have, haven't been following it that closely but essentially it's like fans get a stake on on what the club does in its day-to-day -day runnings that aspect of it could be interesting but again it's all built on this uh infrastructure that is incredibly uh <laughs> incredibly complicated because i'm absolutely butchering this description but also uh it's it's very power intensive to make these cryptocurrencies to to mine them to add them to the blockchain it takes an incredible amount of power um i can't remember the exact stats but it essentially works out that all crypto mining um, which is like, you know, the process of adding stuff to the blockchain and everything, uh, that is worth the same amount of energy usage as one of the top, I think it was like top 16 European countries, something like that. It's uh, basically, uh, it's, it's a lot of power that's being used. So, yeah, I just, I, I, I see there being some potential usage of it. It's just the case of, Making sure that the tech, I think it's an idea that's too ahead of its time and power consumption needs to come down before it's then, yes, let's go for this. Because th th there's some real world use cases where I feel like NFTs could be useful. It's just that in its current form, where it's just selling monkey photos and pixelated, you know, robots or whatever it is, these AI generated images, I just don't think that's where it's at. But in terms of, you know, you can see, like I said before, from a club perspective, um, having the uh, the ability to have a constant revenue stream. I mean, that's, you know, it, it's one of those where you could get left behind if every other club in the Premier League decides, right, we're all going all in on these cryptocurrencies and these NFTs. Then, you know, if, if you're the club that's not doing it, you could easily get left in the dust. Because right now it's like a booming industry 
or right or wrong. I, I personally feel like I said, I think it's a it's a fad. It's it's going to go away soon, but who knows? Thanks, Rick. I appreciate uh, you responding with that. I threw you right in the deep end uh, with, with that one. I mean, it, I suppose, like you said, with the example of the Syria, you can understand sort of interest if it involves a sort of more sort of democratic process that does involve the fans more in decision making. You can see the benefit of that, certainly from a revenue stream uh, potential. You can understand Liverpool's interest, but then you sort of consider, I suppose, the threat just to just to ordinary people, you know, maybe investing loads of money in this and hope that it eventually, you know, it accrues revenue for them. You know, there's a potential for them to lose money in this. You know, it feels like a scam almost of epic proportions. You know, like if pyramid schemes are here, then NFTs and cryptocurrency are just bordering underneath. Um, but with that, we're going to move straight on to all the joys of transfer rumours, which will steadily be increasing in pace as we are close. We approach uh, the deadline for the January window. I'm going to start off uh, with Paulo Dybala. Um, Steve, I know you have a lot of interest in the Serie A. It's a player that's relatively familiar, familiar to you. He's 28 years old. His contract's expiring in the summer. He has a currently impressive goal contribution rates of 15 goals, uh, goals and assists in 23 games, which works out to roughly, in terms of his minutes, um, 0.87 goals or assists every 90 minutes. Um, what, what are your thoughts on Dybala, firstly? And, you know, do you see Liverpool sort of being genuinely interested? Yeah, I think Liverpool are definitely interested. Uh, I think there's a number of teams across Europe that is interested in Dybala. Uh, the question would be if they could get him from Juventus. Um, Dybala himself, in terms of, um, you know, ability-wise, world-class. There's no other word for him. He's world-class. He's had ups and downs. Um, but, you know, recently, players like Eden Hazard gets called world-class and he had an off-season. You know what I mean? So, Dybala has these has some off-field issues. I know he's had some issues with Juventus. Um, and they seem to be patched up now. It seems to be okay. And there's been a few changes behind the scenes and stuff. So he seems to be a bit happier now. Yeah, I mean, it'd be great if he signed for Liverpool because there's a couple of positions that he can play in that I think Liverpool are lacking at the minute. Um, he, is a, he is effective. I mean, I think he, first and foremost, he would be too good to be on our bench. Um, but if he was to be brought into the club and he was happy to sort of play that Kind of what Jota's doing at the minute for us, but on the other side. Uh, you could put Dybala into the right wing position. You could put him as sort of uh, just behind the striker. You could put him up front if you want to. That's probably not his best position now. Um, you could even drop him into midfield. He's not played there much, but he's got the skill set where he could drop into midfield, especially if he's got Firmino in front of him. I think he'd be, you know, a really good fit for Liverpool. He's a ridiculously talented footballer. The question would be, the money uh, would Juventus let him go he's a massive asset um, other teams would be interested as well if if Dybala was to come onto the market Liverpool would be one of, of many teams that would be interested to me uh, Dybala given the sort of wages I'd expect him to go you know be asking for and also the fee that Juventus would probably ask for you know what many what many people would consider to now be their star player uh, obviously Ronaldo even recently he was Everywhere he goes, he's the star player, of course he is. But, you know, Juventus would ask for a lot of money. Dybala would ask for a lot of money. It, it would make sense more for a team like Man City or Man United to just splash out um, on a player like Dybala. Um, but, yeah, if it was FIFA, I'd sign him because he's, he's, he's 
a little bit like Jota in that way, uh, not to undersell Dybala um, or to, you know, I don't really want to compare the two players like that because they're quite different. Um, but effectively, what Jota does on the left, Dybala would do phenomenally for Liverpool on the right. Uh, I think he'd be a great option off the bench. He would, you know, as I say, he's too good for our bench, to be honest. I'd love it. Doesn't make much sense to me. Uh, certainly not the financial side of things. A glowing, re- um, glowing review for Dybala there. Um, again, as you point out, you know, we've got you know, the likes of Jota, uh, Salah, Mane uh, around to just raise questions about where we're going to fit in the minutes to keep him happy. Again, you brought at Manchester City and you could certainly understand, um, given they were looking for that sort of cutting edge striker in the summer, you know, they spent loads of money on Jack Grealish. It's not perhaps quite worked out as well as they intended it to do. Obviously, they were looking for Harry Kane, didn't quite get there. Um, another another player whose future has been sort of hotly contested, of course, is that of uh, Nat Phillips. Uh, Pete, Liverpool are known to want £15 million, uh, which in my mind certainly is a quite reasonable asking price, if anything, a bargain, really. Um, there have been various reports about interest in him from likes of West Ham, Watford. Watford were reported, have reportedly lodged a £7 million bid uh, for his services. I mean, why is no one seemingly particularly willing to act on their interest, given the, the quality of the player we're talking about? And, you know, in many a fan's mind, you'd be getting him pretty much a bargain for £15 million or roughly around that figure. Yeah, it does seem strange. It's it's been similar with what we've done with like the likes of Shakiri and Arigi. It seems that we we have a price and we and we stick to it. Maybe people come along and try and think they can wind us down or get the price down a bit, but it doesn't ever seem to happen with us. You know, we, I think the same way that whether it's Klopp or the whole club or whatever, we we have a figure in mind for the player that we want to pay and a figure that we want to sell them for. And I think because we're in such a good position, especially at centre-backs, I think, you know, it might not be the best for Phillips in his career, but I think we're happy to to have him as the option that, you know, he played in the Champions League, he'll play in the FA Cup, you know, when he's back from injury. We're happy to have him in the squad, and especially after what happened last year, we're not going to be any rush to sell any of our centre-backs, are we? So I think, you know, it's fair play to us. It, it might might be detrimental to, to Nat Phillips as a save for the rest of his career, but I think, you know, if we're firm enough with what we believe in and, and that's how much he's worth, and you know, as you just said yourself, you know, I think that is a fair price to ask for him, then then why not? You know, we, we know how good he was for us last year. He wins every header. You can see him being in any... You know, no disrespect to him, but the teams like Watford and that near the bottom of the table, you can see him behind those teams. And when it gets tough for him at the end and they need to get the balls headed out, he'd be everywhere. And he's definitely a threat in both boxes as well. So, yeah, I, I'm happy to keep him. And I think he's a, he's a really good option. And if that's the price we want, then we're in no position to rush to sell him. Maybe alone for the second half of the season might be best for, for him, really, because you know, we want him to make sure his career carries on and you don't want him just sat there doing nothing. So maybe if a loan comes up, then we, we might do that towards the end. But I don't, if people don't reach the price, then there's no reason for us to sell, really. I mean, I don't think there's a, a better fifth choice centre back option in world football at, at the moment. You know, frankly, it's it, it's it doesn't do him justice, obviously, given the the talent at his disposal. He's, you know, he's proven it abroad as well as domestically when he had to help deputise in the central defence when the likes of Van Dijk and Joe Gomez were out with long term injuries. Um, again, as you say, Peter, rightly so. I think a loan option could prove valuable both for the player and for Liverpool to potentially boost his value out of a more lucrative summer move. 
Uh, we'll see on that front. It amazes me still that there hasn't been any sort of con- more acceptable concrete offers for his services, but we'll, we'll see on that. Plenty of the window left. Uh, just to finish off, of course, we've been heavily, heavily linked uh, with a certain wonder kid from the championship, uh, Fabio Carvalho. Um, excellent form in recent weeks, five goals, five goal contributions, pardon me, uh, in his last three games in the championship. Um, Another one of those that sort of makes sense for Liverpool in the sense of, you know, he's 19 years old, will turn 20 in the summer. So he fits that sort of general age profile our recruitment team tend to go for. Um, and of course, his contract expires in the summer and it's expected to remain that way, according to the various sources. Uh, Steve, does this one sort of make sense to you um, as a potential signing for Liverpool? Yeah, it reeks of Liverpool, going to. Um, at the end of the day, our, our recruitment um, staff, I've not been shy of plucking players from the championship. A lot of people, obviously, you know, you have to remember uh, the likes of uh, Wijnaldum, um relegated uh, with Newcastle. We, we, we've plucked players from the championship before. Um, you know, it, it, it does just make a lot of sense. Young player, contracts running out, it just it just reeks to Liverpool. It's it's something I hope we're all over. I can't say I've seen a great deal of a lot. I've, I've seen a couple of clips, you know, at... Um, I only recently found out who he was, to be honest. Um, so I've, you know, from what I've seen, he seems an impressive player. And if our recruitment staff have looked at him and gone, you know what, he could add something to our squad. We've already got a very good squad who are around that age bracket, even younger as well. You know, the likes of um, of Harvey Elliott and Kay Gordon. So to see another talented player come into the mix, yeah, it'd, it'd be lovely. And yeah, it's certainly it's one of those that it, it sounds like there's a great deal of possibility there. Um, but you know it comes down to the player and people around the player and if Liverpool want to go for him that's going to be a big step for him and then that'll just be you know depends what he wants to do really more than anything I, I imagine at this stage I mean, there have to sort of be parallels uh, rough parallels I should say drawn uh, between Carvalho and of course um, our very own Harvey Elliott you know it's a player that's turned 18 you know maybe made some impressive outings um, at the start of the season, sadly, before the injury at Ellen Road. Um, and, you know, the general sort of consensus about Carvalho seems to be that he's ready to make that step up uh, to the Premier League. Obviously, it's, you know, quite a step up to Liverpool, than to say, you know, a sort of lower-ranked side in the Premier League. Um, but, you know, if Harvey can do it, you'd have to expect that the, you know, there are other players out there uh, that would fit the bill, potentially like Carvalho. And again, fits the bill for, for FSG, potential free transfer, um, in, in the summer, 20 years old, you know, a lot of potential there. It, it, as, as you rightly pointed out, it does seem to reek uh, of Liverpool and the kind of transfer business we've become familiar with. Um, just finally, of course, um, we've had some the latest updates uh, on Liverpool's, the Liverpool curriculums and schools. Um, Hillsborough disaster and all, all that followed in the 30 years and the ongoing fight for justice will be taught, uh, added to the Liverpool schools curriculum. Um, Hey, I just want to come to you here because I think the first thing that sort of initially struck me hearing this story was, you know, obviously a great move for the city, but why isn't this more of a sort of nationwide um, thing, especially we've seen with some of the absolutely horrific chants most recently with Shrewsbury Town who had to ban several of their own supporters for vile chants in the city before the game. Uh, you know, is, is this something that sort of needs to be spread far and wide as possible? Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, I think that the reason it's just in Liverpool is the reason why 
this has been going on since 1989 because a lot of people still don't understand it, as shown by, as you say, the, the Shrewsbury fans and pretty much nearly every team we play against. So they'll they'll sing always the victim because they've heard other teams sing it and probably don't even realise what it's referring to. And even when they do, they, they probably just subconsciously think, oh, well, yeah, it probably was Liverpool fans' fault that even no matter what, they'll still have that feeling and the, the prejudice feeling about it. So that's why, you know, that, the push now is, is maybe less about, you know, trying to get people like Duchenfield to finally come to justice for what's happened. They're the thinking, you know, we need to now, this is a lesson for the rest of the country and the rest of the world, really, just what the families had to do for years and years to make sure that the, the, the truth came out. Unfortunately, it wasn't maybe the justice that they wanted, but the truth has come out. But, you know, I don't think there's many kids who have read through the full reports that were done, and that's why they're trying to get into school. So you get you realise early on, you know, there was a problem with with football hooliganism, and Hillsborough happened, but they're not two things that cross over. They're two totally separate issues. So these should it needs to be taught to people. And unfortunately, you know, it's going to be a lot easier to get people the the schools in Liverpool on board. And you know, it's fair play to people like Ian Byrne and and Steve uh, Rotherham who have done this. So. Fair play to them, and and hopefully, you know, it helps the kids realise. And, and as you say, yeah, as we we go on about with everything, though, we just get the kids in first, and they know the truth about what's happened, and it's only going to stop these chants. And you know, everyone who goes to school in Liverpool isn't a Liverpool or an Everton fan. You know, it'll spread it across the rest of the teams, and all it takes is for one person stood in a group of 20, 30 to say we shouldn't be singing this, no matter what it is. That stops it on a football level, and it's not all about football. Obviously, this is a a battle against you know the government and the police, so it's 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 really worthwhile that the, the kids are learning. You know that you can have a voice, and you, you know this is those families to fight for so many years, and if they're then taught that you know if you can stand up for yourself if something's right, stand up for yourself and do it, and you know it's testament to the families that it's still going on today, and you know it shouldn't be because it never should have happened, but it's testament to them that it's still a subject that we're talking about, and you know it shouldn't just be the pool fans; it should be nationwide should be worldwide but you've got to start small maybe so if you get the city on board and then see where it goes and hopefully it's just a it's a snowball effect and you know the, the lessons that could be learned from Hillsborough keep going and you know fair play to everyone as I said for making that happen absolutely no well said I mean Steve I mean Pete's perfectly sort of explained there sort of the, the importance of, of certainly you know spreading the message of you know the, the, the plight of the families and you know the loved ones are found the fans affected um you know it's absolutely critical that this remains sort of in the the public consciousness in liverpool um well forever of course uh, but in terms of i suppose changing not just the culture um inside stadiums but critically outside of stadiums when it comes to um the image you know not not just not just of the the disaster itself, but also the city and the people of Liverpool. Uh, what what kind of action is, is going to be necessary to change that perception uh, and just to change the public consciousness outside of Merseyside? Yeah, I mean, one thing that always comes to my mind, and I'm not going to name any names, of course, like, but when I was um, studying journalism at uni, um, it was... We were discussing in one of our sports classes the uh, Hillsborough disaster, and there was this. Um, there was person who, who, who was originally from Kent, 
and he came up um, and they were asking around the room like how, how much you knew about the Hillsborough disaster and stuff and he was um, someone who I don't know what we were doing but he had his hand up effectively to sort of give his response I think it was a case of he was the person who didn't know really what it was and then he, he was asked by the lecturer so, so what do you know about it and his response was very uh, blunt it was just oh I just thought it was the Liverpool fans fault and that was, that was his response to the question to the whole room Obviously, that could have turned very ugly. It didn't. We all understood. You know, at the end of the day, he's a you know twenty-something from Kent. It's not something that we really know down there. But the fact that that, that is preconceived idea was that oh, it must have just been the Liverpool fans' fault, which was you know something that uh, Pete touched upon there. It is something that does need to be taught in schools, even if it's part of a larger curriculum, because you could you could certainly draw parallels of social injustice. Uh, between the likes of the Hillsborough disaster, um, you even got the the situation what happened um, in Bradford, the Bradford fire. There's got the Grenfell uh, situation. Um, these things have all got some parallels to each other. You got Astro World as well. There's all these things where you could look at these situations, what caused them to happen. You know, you could talk to these young people who sort of need to know what happened, why they happened, why they were wrong. At the end of the day, in school, you've got to go through bits of history where people weren't perfect. You know, if you go through history, you look at the, you know, war crimes and stuff like this. You have to go through these kinds of, you know, traumatic things that, you know, we've got to learn from at the end of the day. Um, yeah, Liverpool is going to be the place where that starts when it comes to the Hillsborough disaster. Maybe it can sort of snowball to the rest of the country. Um, but yeah, I do think that it would be somewhat beneficial if they were able to sort of look at the situations that happened at Hillsborough, you know, similar situations like Renfell, Bradford Fire, these things where, you know, social injustice, social justice was lacking. Um, obviously, yeah, in Liverpool specifically, um, I can see why there might be a bit more of an in-depth look at it because it was a sort of battle of the city that it's it's still going on now. And obviously people outside the city have been fighting the same fight as well. But living in the city, you live and breathe it almost every single day. There's, you know, yearly reminders. You don't really forget about it. There's monuments all over the city, stuff like that. So hopefully it's something that starts here. And like Pete said, you know, well done to all the politicians that have made it a thing. It's really good that the young people in the city are going to be learning about something that is, it is a part of their history. You know, for a fight that went on for three decades and it you know, still is going on, it's something that shapes a community and shapes a type of people. So, you know, it's really positive to see. And, you know, like I say, hopefully it is a snowball effect and we see, you know, people all over getting a bit more educated on these things. Um, and we see less of the chance that we've seen, which, I mean, is, you know, parallel to abuse, to be honest with you, if, if you hear these chants. And, you know, if somebody who, who suffered from the Hilbert disaster hears these things, I mean, that's horrific. They, they, you know, it's awful. So you've got that aspect of it. But as I say, if you get if you get them parallels with Renfell and stuff like that, like maybe that lad in Kent, maybe um, if he'd have came up to uni and he was taught about, you know, there's some sort of parallels between Grenfell and, and uh, Hillsborough, even if it's just the way that the community feels, you know, you might look at it a bit differently and be a bit, be a bit better educated going into it. Yeah, so as I say, hopefully it's a snowball effect. And at the end of the day, if we all just learn from these things, you know, we'll all be better for it. No, absolutely. Absolutely. As you've obviously both touched upon, as much as we can sort of um, rightly point the fingers, you know, the, the higher institutions, central governments, um, we have to sort of draw attention to those that are, you know, fighting to see, you know, things like this, education sort of promoted, even if, even if it's only in within the borders of Liverpool at the time being, you know, there's the hope that it can extend 
beyond that, and it certainly should, even as you rightly pointed out, Stephen, sort of a as part of a larger sort of curriculum, um, it's worthwhile having it there to sort of educate people and you know sort of respect that this is this is obviously an issue that it continues. Um, to affect you know so many people, so many families, so many friends, all, all the loved ones, the fans affected, um, and we certainly stand by and support them um, in their ongoing fight for justice. Um, well, we hope you enjoyed this latest instalment of the Red Nets podcast. Uh, thanks to Steve Carson, Peter Kenny Jones, Rick Elliott, and of course I'm your host Farrell Keeling. Um, we hope to see you next week. Take care. <laughs>